last Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, hopefully uh, you were able to be there, part of that great worship service on Wednesday night. We began a uh, new series that we uh, are going to be talking about now throughout the season of Lent. And we were talking on Wednesday night about how each one of us, everyone in this room, every single day of our lives faces a phenomenal number of choices. I mean, they're all around us. We, we really can't avoid it. They're, they're just everywhere. Some of them are small. Some of them are big. Some of them make a, a lot of difference, and some make uh, very little difference at all. But uh, uh, when we make these choices, especially the big ones, the ones that really make a difference, uh, it would be great to be able to figure out a way to make wiser choices. And that's what we'll be talking about. Now, in, in making wiser choices, we begin with the, uh, the most fundamental choice of all which we talked about on Wednesday night. And from there we can build. We can, uh, we can, we can build and we can find that if we get the, the, the fundamental choices right, that the other choices begin to fall into place, they begin to make more sense. Wiser choices begin to happen. That's what we can read about in the book of Proverbs, as a matter of fact, is, is that kind of a thing. You get those kinds of things right and, and the other things follow. Now, when we talk about this, we're going to be taking a look at various uh, characters in, in Scripture who were facing some choices. Today, we begin with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, you know, when we encounter the Pharisees in Scripture, we encounter people that oftentimes seem to be kind of two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. Uh, they were these foils of Jesus, always kind of hovering around and, and uh, kind of like, you know, I don't know, you know, horse flies or something like that in the summertime. And just bugging Jesus. But uh, these were people. These, these were flesh and blood people like you and me. And they had choices to make just like we do. And one day, Jesus, Jesus presented a choice to them that they had to make. And it's the kind of choice that really is a fundamental choice, a foundational choice, something that uh, you and I would have to face as well. The Pharisees, though, were people who, uh, you know, even though Jesus tried to guide them into making wise choices, well, they were stubborn. And they thought that they knew which way was the best, and their pride really was their undoing. It led them to be fence-sitters, people who were sitting on the fence, playing it safe with a foot in both worlds. But Jesus wouldn't let them stay there. Instead, we, we catch up with them in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, where Jesus says this to them, as I believe He also says to us now this morning. He says, He who is not with me, is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. A lot of people choose not to choose. They like to sit on the fence, like the Pharisees are doing here. They like to leave the choice really unexamined and unresolved, but Jesus doesn't really leave that kind of an option for people, not with this kind of a statement. Matter of fact, there are some choices really that we encounter in life that we know that a choice has to be made. Let's say, for example, you're driving and uh, you're going to be merging onto the freeway. And as you merge onto the freeway, you notice that the lane that you're merging into has a big semi-truck coming up that lane. And now you've got a decision that you have to make. You have to decide, am I going to slow down to get in behind the semi? Or am I going to speed up in order to get in front of the semi? You've got a split second to be able to make the decision, but you have to make a decision. A has, decision has to be made. Uh, ignoring it or pretending as though that semi was not there will not work. 
And now Jesus gives us this kind of a momentary decision that we have to make as well. A uh, Sitting on the fence anymore really is not an option when Jesus says, he who is not for me is against me. He's saying, which way is it going to be? Choice has to be made. Are you with him or not? Are you gathering or are you scattering? There's no fence sitting, no apathy, no comfy uh, spot on that fence anymore, no cozy plateau. It's either with Jesus or not. So which will it be? Now, Jesus, when he is talking about this, you know, he describes what he means by this. And what he means by this is that those who are with him are ones who gather with him. Those who are with him are ones who bear fruit. And, um, you know, this, this fruit-bearing kind of a thing can make a lot of us a little, bit, a little bit nervous. It makes me a little bit nervous. But then I think about this, okay, that um, one, of the, one of the great things about Michigan that, that, that I love is, is uh, in the fall of the year when uh, you can go out and you can go to these places where you can, where you can buy these freshly picked apples, and growing up in Minnesota, you know, that was one of the cool things there. I mean, when I moved out to Colorado and lived out there, you know, I, we, we didn't have that. I mean, the, you know, that was, just wasn't part of the climate. But here it is, and, and you can go to an apple orchard. You can, you can get these freshly picked apples. In Minnesota, you know, I, there was this area where I would drive down the road, and I'd see all these uh, trees, these apple trees, and toward the fall of the year, you'd see, you know, the red apples hanging on the trees. Now, I have yet to drive by the actual apple orchards here. Now, last night I had people coming up to me saying, you have never driven by an apple orchard here in Michigan? Let me tell you where you need to go. And, uh, you know, directing me where I need to go to be able to see these things. But, you know, it, it's, you know, okay, I'm sorry, I haven't seen that yet. I've gone to where they sell them, okay, but I haven't actually driven by the trees. So in Minnesota, though, I have. And, and there I'd see these things. Well, I went off to college in California. And in Southern California... They've got these orange groves where they've got these oranges hanging on the trees. So it's pretty easy as you're driving down the road there and you see these orange groves. As a matter of fact, they've got a county called Orange County, you know, named after these orange groves. So you drive down the road and, and you see these oranges hanging on the trees. And you say, okay, that's not an apple tree. You know, that's an orange tree. Pretty easy to tell by the fruit that's hanging there. And they grow these things because... You know, the, the branch, it doesn't just come from the branch. It comes because it's that kind of a tree. It produces that. So when we are attached to Jesus, when we are attached to him, then through the, that natural process, just like when an apple with an orange, orange tree, comes fruit. Little Jesuses, okay, are, are what happens there. There's transformed life. And through us, Jesus makes a difference in the world. And that's what he's saying when, when he says, if, if, you know, either you're attached to me or you're not. So which will it be? Pharisees sitting on the fence. But the Pharisees couldn't relate to this because they were still warming that fence. And they wanted more information before they made a choice. See, uh, for you, against you. Jesus, why don't you do this? Then we'll decide which way we're going to go. Jesus, why don't you show us a miracle? Show us a miracle, Jesus. Show us a sign. Then that'll make it easy for us to decide which way that we're going to go. 
Now, the Pharisees had heard, and many of them had seen already, plenty of miracles because Jesus was at the height of his popularity at this point, and all kinds of people had been healed and you know, various things had happened, and they wanted a show, something that happened right there in front of their eyes. But it doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, when Jesus went to his hometown in Nazareth and they wanted a show, they wanted Jesus to perform some kind of a miracle for them too. But Jesus wouldn't do it, he said, because they didn't have any faith. Because you see, miracles happen out of faith. Faith produces miracles. And not necessarily the other way around. Because Jesus could do all kinds of signs and wonders in front of these people, and that doesn't mean that they would wind up believing you know, a miracle, you know, as far as what that is, let me, you know, let's work on a definition here of what a miracle is. A miracle is something which God alone can do. And it might refer to the content of what happens, you know, what actually happens there, but it might also be something that's more ordinary, but it happens in an extraordinary way or timing. You know, because God oftentimes uses the laws of nature and uses them in an extraordinary way to, pro- to produce a miracle. So they wanted something extraordinary to happen. Then they would believe. But in this case, Jesus decided to give them a miracle. He decided to give them, in fact, three miracles. And these are the same miracles that we can see today, and we can look at them today and say, wow, you know, that's something that might be able to reinforce my faith. That might be something that, that I can look at and say, okay, Um, Yeah, I didn't think of that as a miracle before, but it is. The first one is this. It's the miracle of Jesus himself. Because Jesus himself is a miracle. And it says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, where uh, Jesus is answering the Pharisees after they've asked for this miracle, this sign. And he said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. And he went on to say at the end of the same paragraph, Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. In other words, he's pointing them, in in response to their request for a miracle, he's pointing them to himself, because Jesus himself is a miracle. And think about it, okay? Is this something that God alone can do? The incarnation where Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us? And he comes, God, the infinite, comes into finite. I mean, that, that, if, if there's anything that God alone can do, that would have to be it. That would have to qualify. And then there's Jesus' faithfulness, where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness uh, to go a different path. He was given plenty of opportunity, leading all the way up to the cross, to go a different way, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, on the night that he was betrayed, given an op- you know, he was looking for other options. You know, but but in, in the end... Jesus was there on the cross because he chose you. And he did not deviate from that. Instead, he went there to choose you so that you might have an opportunity to choose him. Without without him doing that, there would be no choice to be made. Jesus' faithfulness all the way to the cross to die for us, that was a miracle. And then Jesus' words and his actions, the Pharisees traveled with Jesus and they would have seen his, his deeds, they would have heard his teaching, and the people described his teaching as being teaching with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, something that was unusual, something that was divine, something that was extraordinary, something that God alone 
really could do. And yet none of that was enough for the Pharisees, but Jesus himself was a miracle. To see him is to see God. To see his love is to see God's love. To see his sacrifice is to see the heart of God, which is why when the Pharisees were attacking Jesus, Jesus responded by warning them against sinning against the Holy Spirit. Because if you see Jesus, you see God. Secondly, the resurrection is a miracle. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The resurrection is a miracle. It's something that God alone can do. When he he describes it this way, you know, some people may look at it and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, okay, uh, this must be the new math here. Uh, Three nights, Um, you know, uh, let's see. Friday night, Saturday night, Jesus raised on Sunday. That's only two nights. What happened on the third night? And uh, I think that, you know, we can interpret this one of two ways. Either one way is that, remember, when Jesus was crucified, the sky in the middle of the day turned black as night, counting as a third night. But I think that probably the more accurate way is to get at what Jesus is meaning by this, that when the prophet Jonah was swallowed by the fish, it was as though he was dead. I mean, who lives through that? Who lives through that? And yet, and yet the fish spit him out on the ground, on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the beach. And he lived, so it was like a resurrection. So now he's describing that, using that to describe what will happen to him, that he will be dead and buried in the tomb, and yet he will walk out on the beach, so to speak, and live. That's really what he's pointing to here. The resurrection of Jesus is a miracle. And yet there are skeptics. There are those who really choose not to accept this, and, and they'll look at this and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I think that the disciples just took the body, or uh, maybe Jesus wasn't dead in the first place, you know, and he just kind of resuscitated, you know, that cool air in the tomb, you know, whatever, um, and just kind of got up and walked out one day and said, hi, guys, um, you know. But where, whichever way that you come down on this thing, it's going to have to take faith. You know, whether you are a doubter, in what happened with the resurrection, or whether you are a believer, it takes faith. And yet logic falls on the side of the resurrection. Take a look at this. Jesus was ex- executed by experts in death, the Romans. They executed thousands of people by crucifixion. Nowhere have I ever come across any record, any indication that anyone has ever survived crucifixion. Every single time, it was sure and certain death. In this particular case, we see in the Gospels that that Jesus was, uh, to make certain that he was dead, and this would follow with their expertise in death, the Roman soldiers, even though they saw that he was already dead, they made sure that he was dead by taking a spear and driving it up through his heart. So if nobody has ever, there's no record of anybody ever surviving crucifixion, why is it that we would think that this one would be the exception. You know, these were the experts in that. Secondly, if, if uh, we look at the disciples who were the cowards of the world, I mean, the, n- none of them except for John showed up at uh, the crucifixion, and yet somehow, some way down the road, uh, here we find them standing on the street corners as the most courageous, outgoing evangelists ever known 
to man. They were warned by the Pharisees not to preach in, in Jesus' name, and yet there we, they were, you know, fresh out of prison, out on the corner, preaching again. Something happened. And then the Gospels were written during the time of those who would have been eyewitnesses to the events. Yet there's no indication anywhere that anybody objected to what the Gospel said. You know, there's no indication that, you know, the other disciples spoke up and said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, Mark, I, I don't think so. Didn't really happen that, no, nothing. Which all of this shows us that logic is on the side, actually, of the resurrection. The resurrection is something that God alone can do. It's a miracle. But a life transformed by Jesus is the greatest miracle. Jesus tells us this little parable when he's addressing this group of Pharisees. And it's a little parable about this guy who had an evil spirit expelled from him. So he's in his right mind now, you know, and we see other, uh, you know, demonic uh, exorcism stories in, in, in the Gospels. And here we've got this guy right mind now. But the problem is, is that he, he, he has nothing that he fills that empty room with. So the uh, evil spirit goes away, finds seven friends of his worse than himself, comes, comes back and discovers that, you know, the room is still empty. So they say, hey, come on, guys, let's move in. And they all move in, and life is even worse for this guy than it was before. That's a description of what happens really with the Pharisees because the Pharisees were really good at telling people what not to do. And some of these things were really things that they probably should not do. They'd clean up their life. But they didn't have Jesus to fill the room and, and, and occupy the space where all this bad stuff used to be. So then they wind up being worse off than they were before. And, you know, we know this, that uh, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, and that's what we create with that empty room is a vacuum. So that we can see that, you know, in other aspects of life, uh, you know, you've got a bad habit, you quit smoking, uh, you quit drinking, uh, you uh, give up pornography, give up swearing for Lent, stop kicking the dog when you come home from work, you know, whatever it might be. And, and yet if nothing, no good thing, is put in the place of those things, it would be very easy for those things to come back again and worse than they were before. How do you stop a bad habit? You replace it with a good one. You know, that's the kind of law that we're talking about here. But here it's also talking about something more than that. It's talking about spiritual warfare. Talking about what happens in the spiritual realm. And it's something that, you know, at some point in time we need to dive into a little bit more deeply than we're going to have the opportunity to do today. But with that in mind, what, what we can describe it as is, is that Satan is jerking your chain. And you say, enough. Now what are you going to fill that space with? Or just go through life empty? There's plenty of people going through life empty. But Jesus is saying here, you have a choice. You don't have to go through life empty. You don't have to go through life with the seven spirits coming back and taking up residence there. You can choose Jesus. You can choose Him. Psalm 111, verse 10 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wise choices. 
All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. That word fear has got all kind of baggage, you know, in our modern world. We might use the word reverence. Reverence for the Lord. Respect for the Lord. Honor for the Lord. Esteem for the Lord. Awe for the Lord is the beginning of wise choices. It's foundational. It's fundamental, which means that that to fill that room, I have awe for God. I'm off the fence. And say, God, I honor you. God, I am in awe of you. God, I want you to take up residence in this room so that the room is no longer empty again. And when that happens, the most fundamental choice of all has been made. From that choice, we can make other choices more wisely. So let's see what we've got here then. On the one hand, we've got the good choices that are based on this foundational choice of inviting him to take up residence in that room. On the other hand, we've got seven evil spirits. Which one would we choose? Meanwhile, the Pharisees are still on the fence. The question is, are you? All of us go through times of spiritual valleys. All of us do. I'm going to invite you this Lenten season to take a look at that room inside of you. Is it empty? Is it dry? That it's time to make that choice. It's time to do something about the empty room and to choose Him, Jesus, the one who has chosen you. Amen.